listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Welcome back to season two of The Rights Pod. Each week, Stanford human rights students will be sitting down to discuss key questions and ideas pertaining to human rights around the world on a broad range of topics, from the role of protests in affecting political change in the Middle East, to international human rights courts, to the role of music in cultural exchange. For our very first episode of 2021, human rights student Ali Cohen sat down with Professor Beth Van Scott from Stanford Law School to discuss the origins of the International Criminal Court, the United States' relationship with it, and what the future holds in regard to the ICC and accountability for international war crimes. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Hello, Rights Pod. My name is Ali Cohen. I'm a sophomore at Stanford, likely majoring in international relations. And I'm here with Professor Beth Van Scott, a professor of human rights at Stanford Law School. Um, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Rome Statue. So first of all, Professor Van Scott, can you tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into international justice and human rights, and what your path looked like? So I was a hum bio major here at Stanford and was really interested in women's health issues. Um, that was my area of concentration. After graduating, I ended up getting a fellowship that would take me to East Africa where I lived for a little over a year doing women's health issues. But while I was there, I became really interested in the full legal framework that women were operating that were making it difficult for them to make um, autonomous decisions about their own health, but also about economics, the well-being of their children, everything. And so I became interested in thinking about human rights issues more broadly, of which I saw the right to health as being one. And so when I came back from that experience, I ended up going to law school and went to a law school that had a really great human rights clinic where I got involved in a whole range of international justice issues. So that's really what sparked the interest. My first job out of law school was at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. I had gone to a talk that someone had given at Yale about um, the revival of the Nuremberg Promise of accountability for international human rights violations and violations of international criminal law. And I was fascinated by everything he was speaking about and this idea of accountability and how important I thought that was. And so when I got a fellowship after graduating from law school, I used it to go to the tribunal and it's been, mm -hmm. I've sort of been in the field ever since. So as a, as a follow-up to that point, that's so interesting that pivot from human biology yeah. to international law and accountability. Do you feel like there's been an intersection in this field between that kind of original interest and now the work you're doing? I have circled back a little bit to that original interest in public health and health issues. And it really concerns the um, experience of victims and survivors in participating in justice processes. With a psychiatrist here at Stanford, Dr. Darren Richter, we've co-formed the, um, it's a program on international human rights and trauma psychology, basically. And the idea is to help victims experience justice in a way that's positive and growth oriented rather than potentially triggering um, to them. And so we help pair individuals with psychiatrists if they're participating in the legal process. We do legal testimony, expert testimony around these issues on the impact of human rights abuses on individuals, both their psychological health, but also with ramifications on physical health. Um, and so that's one area where that early interest in, in health and public health has converged with my work around international human rights and justice issues. Fantastic. That's interesting. I didn't know about that. I'll have to look into that um, 
as I keep moving through Stanford. Yeah, you should, because we have a lot of students involved with us, so there's plenty of work to be done. Very cool. Um, kind of pivoting to the Rome Statute and the ICC, for listeners who aren't familiar with either, um, can you give just kind of a high-level description of what the Rome Statute is and the inter International Criminal Court and what it does? The Rome Statute is an international multilateral treaty that has created the International Criminal Court. It actually has quite a long um, history to it after the World War II period when the victorious allies created the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals. There was talk at the time of making those permanent, of having some sort of a permanent international criminal court. And so members of the international community, state representatives, experts got together and started to debate this. And originally it was proceeding on two tracks. There was a track that was building an institution and then there was a track that was drafting a draft code of crimes against um, humanity, essentially against peace and security. And so eventually those two tracks merged um, and the vision became of a permanent international criminal court. In the 1950s though, the Cold War started to settle in. And so it was very difficult for members of the international community to reach consensus about anything, no less on the creation of an accountability vehicle like a permanent international criminal court. So the project largely withered for a long period of time. There was also a lot of dissension around the crime of aggression that was meant to be one of the core crimes of this new permanent international criminal court, in part because it was a key crime that was prosecuted after World War II. Mm -hmm. In many respects, the crime of aggression was seen as a sort of font for all the other crimes that occurred afterwards, including war crimes, but also crimes against humanity and genocide. And because there were all these proxy wars happening during the Cold War period, it was really difficult to come up with a definition of aggression, what constituted aggression. And so the project really withered. Um, a few dogged academics remained involved. Um, they would have these sort of occasional meetings, but they didn't make a lot of forward progress. Meanwhile, though, a number of other treaties were drafted, including a convention on genocide, the Geneva Conventions, torture convention, a number of terrorism conventions, and a whole host of human rights institutions were built coming out of Geneva. So mm -hmm. fast forward to the mid 1990s, and suddenly with the end of the Cold War, the Security Council was able to operate again with a consensus between the sort of former Soviet Union, eventually the seat was taken over by Russia, the United States, and then the European states, and China sort of went along as well. And so when war broke out in the former Yugoslavia, and there was once again genocide happening within sort of Europe's backyard, there was a turn to history. And the Security Council created the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. A year later, we have the genocide in Rwanda. The international community couldn't turn a blind eye to genocide in Africa when they had created a tribunal for genocide in Europe. And so a second tribunal was created. This opened, this sort of opened the idea of revisiting this permanent international criminal court idea, in part because there were a lot of startup costs of each of these ad hoc tribunals. And the theory was if we had a permanent court, we wouldn't have to create an ad hoc court for each new instance of atrocity crimes that emerged. And so all those old records were dusted off and negotiations began around creating a court. Those negotiations culminated in 1998 in a conference at, um, in Rome uh, hence the Rome Statute. I attended as head of a delegation of a small international human rights organization called um, International Service for Human Rights. It's a Geneva-based organization. I had a small delegation. We were part of a much larger NGO coalition that were really working to create a strong and fair court that would have 
broad-based jurisdiction over atrocity crimes going forward. So the negotiations happened up till the run-up in July of 1998. The treaty was then opened for signature. And once 60 states ratified it, it came into force. And that gave the green light to actually create the tribunal. It was originally established in The Hague in temporary buildings. Now it has a beautiful purpose-built um, kind of architectural digest-esque building in The Hague. Um, and it's currently hearing cases in a number of situation countries around the world. Fascinating. Um, so my next question was going to be, what was your role in negotiations of the Rome Statute? But I'm curious to know more about this NGO coalition um, and how, how much you think that that pressure kind of played a, a role in the ultimate agreement. The NGO coalition was incredibly powerful um, in the run up to and then during the Rome conference. Um, the way these big multilateral negotiations go is you have plenary sessions where all states are involved. And then you have a number of um, smaller, more targeted sessions. And then you have informal meetings where it may even be just on the margins of one of the plenary meetings. And having an NGO coalition enabled us to really follow all of these proceedings that were happening, often simultaneous in different rooms um, within, we were, the, the final negotiations were held in the Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO building in Rome. And so we would meet every morning, we would map out what was on the agenda for the day, we would sort of deploy different NGOs to attend different meetings. We knew which states were strong on certain issues, which states were wavering, and which states were maybe being somewhat obstructionist. And so we would figure out which NGO was the most well-placed to do outreach to those various delegations, which at times would include sort of following the delegate into the bathroom, you know, whatever it took to sort of corner them and get them to focus on your particular issues. But I think the, the work of the NGO community was really um, magnified by the fact that we also had this like-minded coalition of states. At the time, a number of states were true believers in the ICC project. And it was a quite a strong group across regional. And they were also, they were called the so-called like-minded groups. They were also pushing for many of the same things that civil society representatives were pushing for, which was broad-based jurisdiction, including over crimes committed in non-international armed conflicts, a prosecutor with a certain degree of autonomy to be able to choose which procedures to go to, which um, charges to go forward, which situations to focus on, a more limited role for the Security Council, so not an institution that was controlled by the Security Council, but rather the Security Council would have a more um, subsidiary role in that institution. Um, and then absolutely all the fair trial guarantees that every defendant should be entitled to. And so there was a confluence between these you know, many cross-regional like-minded states and then the civil society NGO community. And so we were able to work together to really push these ideas forward. Now, there were a lot of headwinds coming from some of the Arab states, didn't like the definition of genocide and wanted you know, no sense that any persecution against gay and lesbian persons would be considered a crime against humanity, for example. You had the United States that really didn't want a um, independent prosecutor. You had the permanent members of the Security Council that were interested in having more Security Council control over the court, being able to open in, um, investigations and move forward in those investigations. And so this is where the debates happened on some of these really key foundational issues around the, the very institutional design of the ICC. Fascinating. And was there a lot of communication between 
these like-minded states um, and the NGO coalition? And what was kind of the nature of that? Like, what did that look like? Formal, informal meetings? It was mostly informal. Um, like I said, we would meet every morning and then we would also meet in the evenings and sort of compare notes as to what had happened that day. Um, the like-minded groups had a lot of collective action problems, as you can imagine. There were some leaders that emerged both you know, within particular regions and they would do a fair amount of coordination. And then we had our own leadership within the NGO community. And that actually became the coalition for the ICC, which carried on and, and is continuing to do work to help organize civil society actors who want to influence and have a sort of a window into the work of the ICC. But in general, it was it was very informal, very personality driven. It was you know understanding who was the head of which delegations, which delegations they had particular influence over. You know, were they leading a particular working group such that they could you know, filter the ideas out into that working group with other states who also might be like-minded. And then ideally the information flow would go both ways where the states would say, mm, you know, we're getting some pushback on this issue. And then the NGOs would try and galvanize civil society um, and even going back to the countries in question to put some pressure on capitals so that the delegations that were sitting in Rome got instructions from their capitals that well, we're getting a lot of calls from our constituents. They care about this issue. And so, you know, this is the position we should be taking at the Rome statute. So at the Rome conference. So it was a huge collective action endeavor, um, but there was also a bureau that had certain state representatives and they at some point started to create packages of provisions. And that's when things started to get really interesting. And so you would get in the last week of the negotiations, you would get a package released of notional provisions with certain provisions in brackets, which were considered alternative language. And those would be sort of sent out for discussion. And so we would scramble around, figure out which one we liked, why we liked it, figure out what states also supported the same provision and then work on a strategy to get that provision pushed. And then this other provision get that deleted um, and taken out. And so it was this iterative process with this, um, these various notional drafts. And then finally the night, the last night of the conference, the final draft was put for an up or down vote on behalf of states. Um, and overwhelmingly states voted in favor of the final text with only seven voting against. Um, and we actually had to stop the clock because technically the conference was over and we, the negotiations and the drafting had gone on so long, it was in the middle of the night that we did the final vote. That is fascinating. So just so I understand it, near the end, there was kind of a, a slate of different stipulations within the agreement and then you would just narrow in on certain ones to support or try and get deleted and that kind of Thing. Yeah, as we the time when we started the Rome conference, there was a draft. It was a pretty final draft, although there were lots of provisional measures and different formulations of the same provision. So particularly around the jurisdictional regime of the ICC, what would be the jurisdictional preconditions? And there were a whole host of different um, proposals that were included, and they were all listed as alternatives. Gradually over the six-week uh, the six weeks conference while the negotiations were happening, we removed those, they're literally brackets, they're square brackets around text that is 
um, provisional. It hasn't been accepted by the, uh, you know, either a majority or the full negotiating contingent. And so uh, gradually those brackets would get removed and there were hundreds of brackets as we went into Rome. So many people were not even sure we were gonna be able to finish this project, no less get consensus around it. But gradually over the course of the summer, we removed most of the brackets except around those most telling issues, the most key acute questions, mm. the prosecutorial independence, the preconditions for jurisdiction, the role of the Security Council. These were some of the final issues that in the very last days, the Bureau would put out these notional texts and then see how people felt and they would tweak them. And then finally it was put to this up or down vote. Fascinating. Um... Now, do you have any funny stories about negotiations or any specific, particularly memorable moments that come to mind? Well, one moment that was actually somewhat sad. Um, it, it was a, a great fun. I mean, I was a young lawyer at the time. I was only a year out of law school leading a delegation. I had a number of other law students with me as interns. Most, most of the members of my delegation were friends. We had been in law school together. We'd worked at the International Service for Human Rights together. So it was, we all rented an apartment um, and had like mattresses on the floor. I mean, it was sort of a classic. Um, you know, young person's um, first professional experience. The sad part was that the very end when we went to the vote and it was clear that the United States was not gonna support the mm -hmm. final text. That was a really sad moment. And, and, you know, the US put forward a proposal to halt the vote, which was voted down and the entire room sort of erupted in applause. And on the one hand, I was supportive of the final text. And so I was glad that we had won this procedural point. But on the other hand, it was heartbreaking to see as someone who's been very proud to be an American and to have to, to has who knows the long history of American support for international justice issues dating back to World War II period, etc. Um, it was it was sad to me to see that we couldn't join on to the final text because it crossed too many of our red lines. And so mm. fast forward, then when I was in government, I really worked hard to try and find ways for the United States to support the International Criminal Court, even though I knew we would not ratify the statute, that that was a bridge too far, but that so many of the situations that were before the court were areas where, you know, the victims are really crying out for justice, there's blanket impunity, and the United States supported justice in those situations. And so trying to get the United States to, to come to a, a constructive arrangement with the ICC, even while as a non-member state. So that was a, a sad moment for me in a way. It was a, a poignant moment with some very sort of ambivalent um, emotional responses. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's actually kind of a great transition to my next question, which was going to be about um, the United States role throughout negotiations. What was it doing throughout this whole conference? Um, and how do you think that ultimately affected its relationship with the ICC down the line? You mentioned something about crossing too many red lines. Um, yeah, I'm curious about what that means and all that. Yeah, so my understanding is, obviously I don't have any insights into what instructions they had, but a number of people have written about this and I and have spoken with members who are involved with the US delegation. They would come to speak to the um, NGO coalition, et cetera, to try and you know socialize people as to why they were taking the positions um, that they were taking. And it's easy to look back on history and sort of say, oh, the US played a spoiler role. And I think that's really untrue and unfair and incomplete a number of the really good strong elements that are in the Rome Statute are there because of the United States um, engagement around those issues. So 
war crimes in non-international armed conflicts. If some states had had their way, the ICC would only have jurisdiction over international armed conflicts, which as we know are very rare these days. Conflicts tend to be internal. Those are the most damaging um, and the civilians get caught in the crossfire there. And so that would have been a disaster. And the United States worked really hard to include within Article 8, which is the relevant article, a number of war crimes that are committed within non-international armed conflicts. The definition of crimes against humanity, you know, the United States was really supportive of that definition being included and had a lot of say in that. Now, the red lines had to do with, um, most importantly, the, the independent prosecutor. So the fact that um, the prosecutor is under certain circumstances able to open an investigation on her own without either a state referral or a referral from mm. the Security Council, that was an issue. But then I think the fundamental issue, which remains really acute for the United States, is the fact that the ICC can exercise jurisdiction over the nationals of states who are not party to the treaty. So the two preconditions for the prosecutor moving forward with an investigation absent of Security Council referral are, number one, the territorial state has ratified the treaty or the state of nationality of the accused has ratified the treaty. And the United States really wanted an and there. It really wanted both of those states to have ratified the treaty. And this has come to a head when it comes to the situation in, the, in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan ratified the ICC statute in 2003. And then as you know, the United States was engaged in a non-international armed conflict within Afghanistan working on behalf of the new Afghanistan government to try and rout the Taliban and also other um, terrorist elements there. And as we all know, there were instances of allegations of custodial abuses that happened in Afghanistan. And so because those were committed, on the territory of an ICC state, Afghanistan, those potentially fall within the prosecutor's um, reach. And so she has been looking at the situation in Afghanistan for several years. Obviously it's an enormous crime base that includes a number of crimes against civilians by the Taliban, the Haqqani network, other terrorist groups, but also Afghan security forces. But US personnel are also implicated. She recently asked the court for approval to open an investigation. It was originally rejected by the lower court on appeal. It was reversed. And so she now has the legal authority to open an investigation that could implicate US personnel. And so that's an area of acute concern for the United States. And it's precisely because back in Rome, the decision was made to put that or in there, that all that matters is either the state of the territorial state or the state of nationality of the accused has ratified the statute. And that has opened up um, potential ICC jurisdiction here. Makes sense. Um, so to be clear, given that the United States has not ratified this treaty, um, the prosecutor even opening these investigations, what will be the cumulative effect of that? Um, well, it remains to be seen because it is such an enormous crime base. I'm actually quite doubtful that any individual US person, either a direct perpetrator or someone up the chain of command will ever realistically come before the court in part because it's so difficult to do these investigations without cooperation. And it's not clear that the prosecutor will have the cooperation of Afghanistan itself 
It has not referred the situation to the court. It has ratified the, the statute, which creates that jurisdictional precondition, but it's not necessarily supportive of this investigation and actually has asked for the prosecutor to stay her hand and to give it a chance to do these prosecutions domestically. And so that's where that this situation currently stands. But there, obviously the United States is under no cooperation duties towards the court. And so is unlikely to be of, all, of any assistance. And so how do you possibly do an investigation without access to evidence, people who can testify, who was in the chain of command, what were they operating under um, orders? Did they have um, other questions that will come up is, you know, were they operating with legal advice that said that the course of conduct they were engaged in was lawful? As we know, the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel issued a number of um, memoranda trying to interpret the prohibition against torture that seemed to give the green light to certain enhanced interrogation techniques that were in fact mm -hmm. employed in Afghanistan. And so to what extent were individuals operating under the assumption that the lawyers had looked at this and the lawyers had signed off on it. And so there's a whole host of, of questions that would have to be resolved before the prosecutor would ever possibly be able to move forward with even an indictment, no less amassing significant and, and sufficient evidence to convict under a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So that's where things stand now. She has approval to move forward. Afghanistan has asked for um, a, a pause so that Afghanistan can consolidate its own efforts in this regard. And it remains to be seen whether the prosecutor will move forward. And if so, you know where she'll focus her energies. Complicating all of this is the fact that a new prosecutor will be elected in the new year. And so whatever the current prosecutor has done will be handed off to the new prosecutor to make its, their own decision about whether or not they wanna make this a priority, how they're gonna uh, take the, how, how they're gonna pursue any investigation in Afghanistan, how they might normalize relations with the United States, which have reached a real, a, a real nadir under the Trump administration, but with the new incoming Biden administration, it's an opportunity to do a sort of a reset um, so all of this remains in flux at this particular moment in time. Absolutely. Um, so I guess that's a good transition as well to, um, to another question of what you think the future of the Rome Statute in the United States looks like, especially given um, this new administration. Do you think there's any chance the United States ever becomes party to the ICC or, um, or more compliant and more cooperative. Um, what do you think that future looks like? Yeah, it, it remains to be seen what the future will be for the new incoming Biden-Harris administration. I think the situation in Afghanistan will remain of acute concern, but almost all the other situation countries in which the ICC is currently operating, either by virtue of the fact that there are open cases being prosecuted or we know where the prosecutor is, is looking in terms of her investigations, they're almost all situations that the United States would support justice and would support the ICC action precisely because it's sort of the only game in town. It's the only option because the domestic courts for whatever reason are foreclosed or they're in a complementary arrangement where the ICC can take certain high profile cases or difficult cases and let the domestic courts handle sort of larger um, category of potential perpetrators. And so, you know, I would like to see the United States get back to a point of constructive engagement where on the one hand, we are defending US personnel in the event that, you know, for whatever reason that does move forward, but not foreclosing the possibility of being helpful in the event that there are 
ways that you know our own intelligence gathering, our expertise technically, um, our ability to sort of do things on the ground. So two defendants are in The Hague precisely because of US actions. One of them showed up at the US Embassy in Kigali, Rwanda and turned himself in and said, I wanna to go to The Hague. We effectuated that. Another one was captured on the battlefield and, and basically brought to US Special Forces there. Again, facilitated, um, the United States facilitated his transfer to The Hague. And so we are in a unique position to provide that sort of you know, tangible assistance to the court. So you know, we need to get to the point where we can walk and chew gum. We can be concerned and defend ourselves and our personnel if in fact that goes forward, but at the same time, be aware of the fact that the ICC is an important institution that deserves our support. Now, the reality is the ICC's track record has been rather weak. And it's been a disappointment to many members in uh, you know, almost a decade of operation. There's been very few convictions. A number of individuals have either been acquitted or their cases have, dropped, have been dropped in early stages. Clearly the prosecutor's office hasn't consolidated its ability to do solid investigations. There's also a real dearth of state cooperation. And so that's not the fault of the court. That's the fault of the court's states, the states that have joined the court. They're not supporting it in, to the degree that they should. And so to the extent that there are defendants that are still at large, you know, some of that has to do with the failures of state cooperation. The states just haven't arrested individuals when they've appeared on their soil as they are um, supposed to do under their treaty obligations. Likewise, the two Security Council referrals you know, they have not received very much follow on support by either the Security Council itself or other states that are under, you know, some UN charter based obligations to at least think about how to effectuate these cases going forward. And so another way we're in a kind of a new world here is that the, the court has not really proven itself yet. And it needs to improve its working methods. It needs to stop spreading itself so thin, really do the cases it has, do them well, develop that internal expertise. And then I think once it's able to do that, states will be more willing to support its work because it will be seen as an institution that's deserving of support. As it stands, it's, it's seen as a weak institution and there's been a new effort by mem state members in the assemblies of states parties, which is the sort of political body that supports the court of composed of members. You know, they've, started a review process to think about ways to reform the working methods of the court. And so all of these various developments are in flux and happening at the same time. And I think it's really gonna complicate the ability of the United States to get back to a kind of a constructive relationship with the court. Do you think if the United States were to pledge increased cooperation and support that would dramatically affect um, the effectiveness of the court or do these other benchmarks kind of need to come first? I think it's gonna be just being realistic. We need to see some of these other benchmarks first. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Biden-Harris administration coming out of the gate is gonna immediately embrace um, the court and wanna look for ways to be of assistance. I think they'll absolutely take down and revoke the, there was an executive order that was issued by President Trump that enabled sanctions to be brought against individual members of the court. And then subsequently two members were indeed sanctioned. The chief prosecutor and one of her deputies were both um, subject now to sanctions. That will be revoked, there's no question. I think then the advice that I would give would be that the United States should pause and see how these other processes play out, the reform effort, who the new 
um, prosecutor is. There's several judges that are going to be voted in. All of this has the opportunity to really reform the court and bring in expertise and individuals who have a better ability to do the sort of complex investigations that are needed um, to, to make these cases successful. And But also at the same time, have a, an understanding of the diplomatic context in which the ICC is operating and the need to cultivate state support and state cooperation. And part of that is, is doing good in strong cases. And so I think that the US will be in a sort of wait and see mode to see whether some of these other efforts happen. And then eventually, inevitably what will happen is something will happen where the United States will be in a unique position. We'll have custody over someone or there'll be a piece of evidence that we've um, you know, gotten some way or another, a case will be moving forward. We care deeply about seeing justice in that situation. And so then the impulse will be there to be cooperative. And I think we could slowly build a relationship that way based upon kind of mutual respect and understanding between the US and the institution itself. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I could see that certainly happening down the line. Um, but you don't imagine a world in which this happens without some sort of impetus first. I think that's right. Um, and I obviously you asked an earlier question about whether the US would ever ratify the statute. It's very difficult for us to ratify treaties. A number of human rights treaties that have been ratified by like the rest of the world, <laughs> we haven't ratified. So <laughs> the Convention on the Rights of the Child, we're the only state that has not ratified that treaty, even though there's nothing objectionable in there. Everything is very consistent with US law. The Law of the Sea Treaty, which actually directly benefits us in the Arctic Circle, we cannot get through the Senate because there's an anti-multilateralism sort of an ethos there that tends to kick in. There's a sense that somehow the United States is, you know, ceding its sovereignty by virtue of joining these multilateral arrangements, even when they're very consistent with U.S. policy and will advance U.S. interests. So I'm not, nobody I think should be holding their breath for the United States to join the ICC, but I don't think that's the metric. I think the metric mm -hmm. is, are we supporting those cases that are consistent with our own policy around justice and accountability? And can we find ways to do that? And whether we do it privately or publicly, I don't really care. And in fact, it may be much easier to do these things much more quietly, just to not trigger any allergies amongst um, individuals who might be more concerned about um, the Afghanistan situation or the Palestine situation mm -hmm. also moving forward. That's another area of concern to some members of Congress and constituencies here in the United States. And so, um, you know, the key is a kind of a normalization, I think, um, rather than necessarily than embracing the institution. That makes sense. Um, this will, I think, be my last question, but um, how do you think that uh, the rest of the world's response to the ICC has affected the United States relationship with it at all, if at all? There's no question that the ICC is embedded within a much larger multilateral environment, a sort of an ecosystem almost. Um, I think in the old days under the administration of George Bush, when the United States also had a very hostile stance towards the court, at least in the beginning, I think this hurt the United States. It hurt the United States and other multilateral gatherings because so many of our European allies were strong supporters of the court. And so this became part of the talking point. We wanna see a normalization. We, we don't think this hostile stance is productive. We wanna see the United States in the tent, not outside of the tent, even if they're not a full member of the court. And so I think the US took a bit of a hit in those early days because our European allies and other allies in the Southern Cone, et cetera, many of whom have joined the, the statute, didn't like, to, didn't like seeing this hostile approach. Now, 
under the Bush administration, I think over time, they realized that this was not a productive stance and that it was in fact counterproductive in a number of, of different forums. And when we were punishing individuals or states for joining the court by withholding aid, when we actually wanted to provide that aid for other purposes like counterterrorism assistance, et cetera. And so eventually we declawed a number of these initial responses and came around to a recognition that the court played has an important role to play and that the United States could be supportive without having to fully join the court and fully embrace the institution. And so, um, I think getting around to returning to such a point, I think is gonna be um, incredibly important um, under the new Biden-Harris administration. Um, I lost the thread of your question. What was the question originally? Um, I was asking about the, the rest of the world's response to the ICE oh, right, right. and how okay. that's affected the United States. I can circle back to that. <laughs> you know, under the Bush administration, I think our allies care deeply about this. And this became, as I mentioned, a talking point I'm not sure we're at the same place anymore because the court, as I mentioned, has disappointed. A number of states have, have initiated this sort of reform and review process. They have a set of expectations for what they want to see the court being able to accomplish um, and doing so in a way that's much more efficient, that's not so um, expensive, that court is spread too thin, its aperture is too wide, it's sort of trying to do too much and not doing what it is doing well. And so I don't think the United States is under the same sort of pressure that it was under the Bush administration to relax its stance. There's no question that other states are extremely opposed to this executive order that President Trump issued, and we've gotten a lot of feedback in that regard. But short of that, um, I think many many states are themselves, um, you know, wary of embracing the court too tightly, and they they too want to see reforms before they're going to be willing to defend and continue to support with the same, um, you know, set the, the same amount of energy as they were in the early days when everything was idealistic and we, you know, the the institution was still new and fresh. For a bit of background for our listeners, can you touch just briefly on why the United States policies differed from our allies, especially early on, and also what this executive order from Trump was? Yeah, so um, when John Bolton was appointed national security, in, in the, let me start from the early days of the Trump administration. The ICC policy was sort of unclear. It was rather opaque. The the um, it, the Trump administration didn't come out strongly on any issues. It wasn't clear sort of where things stood. It was obviously they were never going to ratify it, but it wasn't in a position necessarily of overt hostility. When John Bolton was brought in as national security advisor, he brought with him a congenital antipathy to the court that he had had under the Bush administration. And so really took this on as a, a key portfolio item and announced a number of strong measures, basically saying it's the US policy to try and destroy the court, took a very odd stance where he implied that it, it stood as an existential threat to US sovereignty, but at the same time was a weak and feckless institution. And so somehow was able to reconcile in his own head why the court could be both, both things at once. Um, he was ousted. And, and so, you know, after his ouster, I think many of us thought, okay, good, this will cool the rhetoric a little bit. Um, but no, in fact, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has really picked up on that same line of attack and has continued to articulate a very negative perspective toward the court. Eventually, this manifested itself in an executive order, as I mentioned, that authorized the imposition of sanctions on anyone who was involved in moving the Afghanistan 
investigation forward or investigating our allies, which is very much code for Israel-Palestine, which is also subject to an investigation by the, the prosecutor. So in fact, sanctions were issued under two individuals. Potentially there are other individuals who are subject to certain immigration remedies. For example, their visas may have been revoked to the United States. They may not be able to, to come, et cetera. We won't know until they try and step on a plane and are suddenly told that they no longer have a visa and are unable to come. So that's where things have stood at the end of this particular administration when it comes to the executive order. So that would need to be revoked immediately. And I think most people are assuming that, that um, the incoming President Biden will do so. If not a day one issue, it's sort of a day 10 um, mm -hmm. issue and, and throw out that executive order with a whole bunch of other things that get thrown out as part of sort of Trump's anti-multilateralism. Um, and a, a, the Biden and Harris administration have already indicated their intention to reemerge and rejoin the international community, particularly when it comes to shared problems that require global solutions like climate change, like the global economy, like the pandemic, and then international justice you know, would be included within that family of issues. And you wanted background on something else, what was it? Oh, the background was also on, I guess, early on why the United States differed from our allies in regards to the ICC. Yeah, the reason the United States took a different stance from the rest of our allies vis-a-vis -vis the ICC really goes back to these red lines at Rome and this um, you know, firm belief that the, the ICC should not be exercising jurisdiction over the nationals of the United States without us joining the treaty. Um, they, this gets articulated as a sort of policy argument. There are some that claim that there's a legal argument there as well, that because we haven't joined the treaty, we haven't accepted the jurisdiction of the court. But the legal argument is, is quite a bit weaker and really is not convincing to anybody because, you know, whenever a U.S. person is operating on the territory of another state, they're subject to that state's laws. And so if that state happens to be an ICC member, then they're also subject to the jurisdiction of the ICC. It's no different than, you know, me being prosecuted in Germany for committing a crime on German territory. And so the legal argument is really unavailing, I think, to the United States, but the policy argument still gets articulated um, and the policy preference. And so that I think is what the point of departure was. We've, I think, reconciled ourselves to the fact that the ICC can't be controlled by the Security Council, that it does have a, a certain degree of autonomy. And I think we've reconciled ourselves with some of the earlier concerns about due process protection. So there's no jury before the ICC. And some had argued early on that if a US person were ever brought before the ICC, it would violate their constitutional right to a jury trial. But as we know, there's lots of circumstances in which US persons are not entitled to a jury trial. You know, military justice systems, et cetera. Um, if they're prosecuted abroad, they're very often not going to be subjected to, you know, entitled to a jury trial because they don't have jury trials in the local system. And so most of those other objections have fallen away, but it, we really still hinge, the, 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 the objections really still hinge on this idea of jurisdiction over the nationals of non-party states. And our European allies are more comfortable with that concept, maybe in part because they're much more integrated within Europe under the EU framework. Um, that, and, and more used to subjecting themselves to multilateral institutions like the European Court of Human Rights, which has broad-based plenary jurisdiction over human rights issues across Europe. And so, you know, we have a kind of a American exceptionalism that I think has played out mm -hmm. here and influenced our unwillingness to really um, subject ourselves to this regime. As it often does. Um, so I guess, finally, um, 
looking to the future, do you imagine under the Biden-Harris administration, the United States relationship with the ICC being better than it has ever been, or at least back to a normal neutral level? My goal or my assumptions for the Biden-Harris administration will be a normalization of relationships. So we, we remove the hostile rhetoric, we take out the line of wanting to destroy the institution, we revoke the executive order, we refrain from these sort of ad hominem attacks on international civil servants who are just doing their jobs, um, and instead focus on defending the Afghanistan situation on the merits, making arguments as to why it's inappropriate under the complementarity regime or you know, whatever the arguments are as to why the, the ICC, the prosecutor should not move forward with respect to any indictments against US persons. That would be the defensive posture. And then I would hope that eventually we could get to the point where we could imagine the United States being supportive of some of the other situation countries. I think it's unlikely that we would immediately revert to an Obama era situation um, just because the, both the Afghanistan and Palestine situations have moved forward. They're farther along than they were back in 2014-15 when the Obama administration was at its sort of maximum in terms of, of being helpful to the court. Um, but I think, you know, I think we'll eventually get there, particularly if the Afghanistan situation can be resolved um, satisfactorily. And I think that may just involve, you know, not seeing any indictments against U.S. persons and the prosecutor focusing her energy on the Taliban and crimes against humanity committed by the Taliban and the horrific terrorist attacks that have been um, committed against Afghan civilians within the, the long-standing war. Um, these are more recent um, abuses. The evidence is much more available. The Afghanistan is likely to be more supportive of getting assistance on these types of cases. Witnesses might be more willing to testify. And so we may get to the point where it's pretty clear that there will be no indictments against U.S. persons in the Afghanistan situation. It's still open. It's still happening. But the risk is so low at this point that we could, you know, relax our defensive posture and then pivot eventually to a much more affirmative um, supportive posture. Thank you so much, Ali and Professor Von Skak, for such an interesting conversation. For this season of The Rights Pod, we will be posting a new podcast every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time or 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 